Welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by thehockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. We are doing things a little bit differently today, and one of the things we always like to do with you guys is keep you on your toes a little bit, try to change things up, and uh, really try to get a diverse set of ideas onto the podcast. So what we're going to do today, rather than bring somebody on to interview them, we're actually going to talk some hockey, Jeff and I, and today we're going to talk about special teams, some power plays, some penalty kill, our thoughts on them, and hopefully for the kids out there and the coaches out there and even the parents out there that are really interested in hockey, you'll get something out of this episode. We're excited to do it. Uh, but before we do get over there, let's bring on the talent of the podcast, Jeff Lavecchio. Jeff, what's going on today? Not much, brother. Had an unbelievable Sunday today. Had uh, my team in the gym, had a couple other teams in the gym. Had my first hockey moms workout class today for some of my clients' moms. They asked me if they could start coming into the gym, and I was like, you know what? Why not? I'm uh, not super, super busy during the season, so um, had my first hockey moms class with some of the some of the kids I trained. So that was really exciting. I had a really good time with them, teaching them some new things, and um, you know, I, I I put a tweet out uh, after I trained them this morning. I was like, you know within my company for eight and a half years now, I never really have trained general population. It's always been hockey players, elite hockey players at that, uh, mixed in with a couple of other sports. If I'm, you know, I trained one, like whole family and their daughter plays D one field hockey or D one lacrosse. And I was like, okay, I'll take them on too. Um, but other than that, no, no real general population clients. So it was really fun and a different challenge. That was really exciting. And the other big thing that I got going on, I know we talked about on here, is uh, dropped my clothing line with Humble Hockey a few weeks ago. And it's absolutely been insane, the amount of people that have been reaching out and sending me pictures saying, hey, you know, I got the hoodie or I got this. And just kind of representing everything that that I try to, try to bring to the world and bring to these kids, you know, give more, be more is what the clothing line is all about. And it's all about just if you want to be something, you have to put in the work, you know, just like you and I did, just like you tell your kids to, just like I do with the kids I train or coach. It doesn't matter what you want to be, whether it's good at school, good at hockey, good at sports, good at life, relationships, you got to give more. And that's what the whole line of clothing is about. So it's been really cool seeing everybody buying that stuff up and representing that around the country. That's really cool. You know, when you said that, do you remember in Sister Act 2? Okay, this is going way back, and this is an off-the-board movie. Actually, not really. It's great. Uh, one of my favorite movies, continue. So, if you want to be somebody. And you, you want to go somewhere, <laughs> you better wake up and pay attention. <laughs> yeah, of as course I remember that. As you were talking about that, that just came right to my head, and I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, that's amazing. Anyone our age loved Sister Act, so if you don't know what we're talking about, bury your head in the sand and like, that was sister act two with lauren hill she yeah unreal too so yeah. yeah great movie um so funny but yeah that's awesome man so is there a website that people can go to 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 get it let's plug it here yeah if you go to humblehockey.com and then you click the tab and go to shop all my stuff's under ripped apparel ripped is my company name uh revolutionary individualized performance training is what i named it eight years ago um so it's under ripped apparel and there's a lot of give more be more stuff and it's been really cool the people buying it up and, and and you know like ryan hardy i saw him the gm of the steel who we had on this podcast which was a great episode if you haven't heard that one you should listen to it 
he was in St. Louis scouting at a tournament we had here uh, last week. And he's like, Hey man, give me one of those hats. <laughs> and I was like, Hardy, you've got a huge head. It's not going to fit you. But I'm just kidding. <laughs> Speaking of Hardy, so we're we're recording this Sunday night, so there will be zero edits done to this episode. <laughs> so whatever we do is going in. But uh, just actually saw coming over social media, Greg Moore, who is the head coach of the Chicago Steel, just got uh, bumped a huge bump up to uh, the head coach of the AHL's Toronto Marlies. So obviously Mike Babcock being fired last week, and then uh, Sheldon Keefe getting promoted to the big job, uh, Greg going over to, to the Marlies. What an unbelievable coach he is, and, and a great guy, and uh, I got the chance to work with him a little bit at, uh, at Ryan Hardy's camp this summer, and he's one of those guys you kind of walk away from just kind of very, very impressed, being like, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. He knows how to communicate with players, and the fact that he got this job, I mean, what a, I think it's going to be an absolute home run, so if there's any Toronto fans uh, that are listening to this podcast, I know there's a lot of people in Toronto that listen, so he is one of a kind, and he's going to do an amazing job. Yeah, super exciting. I, I haven't really got to talk to him a lot, but I got to go to a steel game last year when my team was playing in Chicago and uh, Ryan, the GM, gave me a tour of their facility, let me hang out in the locker room. I got to see him after the game and I just got to see uh, Coach Moore interact with the kids and it was really cool. Like it was just so different than some of the junior experiences we had. Um, you know, obviously times have changed. You can't compare it's apples to oranges, but it was just very cool to see his interaction with the guys on the team. So congratulations to him. That's super exciting. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, they got very capable assistant coaches there and, and Brock Shan, who uh, played at University of Notre Dame, just an unbelievable guy as well as one of my really good friends in the business. And then Mike Garman, too, who's actually a Cornell goalie uh, back in the day. So I just missed him in my playing days. Um, but he did it. He's doing a great job there, too. Um, so very, very cool stuff. Really good to see, uh, you know, good guys that we know get get promoted to, to really good jobs. So I want to say thank you or not thank you, but congratulations to, uh, to Morsey on, on getting that. And congratulations to, to Hardy too, for, you know, uh, hiring him to be a part of the steel and, and then being a part of that process of what they're doing right now. And they're absolutely killing it in the USHL right now too. So, um, but the other side to that, and I think this is something that we should probably talk about too, is the fact that Babcock got, got fired and then Bill Peters gets fired or resigns or was asked to resign, who knows, um, last week. And uh, there's a lot of talk around hockey right now, specifically at the higher levels and even the younger levels, just about, you know, old school versus new school coaching and and uh, even abusive players and things like that. So um, it's just, uh, it's, I think it's a topic we should talk about. So I, I know that you saw that those firings happened. What were your initial thoughts? I mean, I don't, I don't like to talk badly about people that I don't know, but me personally, I've never heard anything good from players that played for Babcock. I always thought it was kind of funny how, I remember back in the day, like you loved Babcock, like the, 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 the book that you read and, and the interviews and all that I ever heard from the players that I played with that played for him in the NHL were like, that guy's a joke. We hate him. And I was like, Whoa, that's like, not what, like the media thinks or like people who have read his book, like it, it's just, it almost seems like he fooled a bunch of people. Again, I haven't been in the locker room. I don't like to, to, to throw shade at somebody who I don't know. I haven't personally played for, but I've never heard a good thing about him from yeah. players, from yeah. players. No, similar. I actually know a guy who played for the wings a while ago and he had like, uh, this was right when like video games were becoming a big thing where you can actually like, um, you know, play against somebody that was not in the same room as you 
Oh yeah, both like through the internet or whatever, and his name was like Babcock sucks. That was oh, his, I, I know who you're talking yeah. about. You know, what I'm talking? okay, yeah, you probably shouldn't say on the, on yeah. here, but um, I don't know him, but I know the people. Yeah, that know, yeah. you know what? He is. Uh, I I did read his book, and and I've spoken to you know some coaches that have done uh, development camps with him, whether it was in Detroit or whether it was in Toronto. And uh, I think he's, a, he's an amazing coach, certainly an amazing coach and knows his stuff is one of the most prepared. Um, I actually heard from somebody that went to development camp with them. Like he's a guy that actually likes to be questioned, um, which is not really what you would think based, especially based upon the stuff that's coming out now. Like he was telling me that he was sitting in a room and they were talking about something and Babcock looks at him and he was, a, you know, he was a nobody college coach sitting in there just kind of getting some experience. And uh, Babcock looks at him and goes, what do you think about that? And he was like, I didn't really, he wasn't expecting to be called on and just didn't really have a good answer. And Babcock's like, if, if you're here, you better contribute. Like, if not, what are you doing here? Kind of thing. And so he was very like direct and very, everything was to the point and stuff. But yeah, I think some of the stories coming out right now uh, that you're hearing, I mean, it's, it's a relationship business, man. And Bill Peters, I mean, using the words that he did uh, against Akeem Aliou, I mean, you just, you can't do that. It's, it's incredible that that actually happens, but it happens. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens. And I think a lot more of it is going to be coming out in the near future. Um, but yeah, I mean, people can kind of get away with that and the old school mentality. Um, we've both dealt with that kind of thing. We've had hard coaches in the past. I would say if you're going to be hard like that, you, you have to really care about the kids. I think that's one of the things, the coaches that were hard on me growing up, I actually thought they cared about me as in some of these other people, especially the people that did play for Babcock kind of sounds like they didn't think that, uh, that he cared about them. So, um, just really unfortunate, but it's, it's a topic that needs to be talked about because relationships, when you do treat somebody that poorly, it can have a huge effect on your health and well being. Um, there's no question, forget about performance. It's obviously going to, um, affect your performance as a, as a player, but it goes even deeper than that. And the more that that stuff can get weeded out, I think is the better. Yeah. I mean, I, I had coaches that were hard on me and I look back and I'm, I'm happy that they were for the most part. But like you said, I do believe that, you know, we've talked about my junior coach on here quite a bit and I do believe that he cared about all of us and he, that was his way of getting the most out of us. Whether I agree with it, I don't agree with it. Someone else agrees with it, doesn't agree with it. That was his coaching style and that's his prerogative. Like he was getting paid to do that. I have no problem with that. Um, we always had good teams and, you know, we, we won a lot and it made me the person that I am and it helped to uh, shape me as a hockey player and I wouldn't have done any of the things in hockey that I was fortunate enough to do without him coaching me. So um, can't say whether I think it was right or wrong. It happened. And I think it was good for me, but I'll tell you what, I have never ever in hockey experienced any racism. I've never seen that personally. And if I ever did see it, whether it was on my team or another team, you better believe I'd be standing up to somebody. There's no chance I would ever let that fly. Um, I think that a lot of people are, it's easy to kick people when they're down and I'm not defending any of these coaches or anything, but, um, I personally never seen any racism and I hope I never do. And if I do, you better believe that I'll speak up. And I'm, I'm glad that more people are speaking up about things like that because that just should not happen. It's 2019, like grow up people. Like you're an idiot. Yeah. And the sport would be better. We talk about it all the time. Our sport would be better with more diversity. There's yeah. no question. Diversity of opinion, diversity of people. Um, the more people we can get into this great sport to fall in love with it, the better. And I know that there 
are a ton of great minority people that are involved in the game right now. We still need significantly more for sure um, to get to where we need to be. But um, yeah, there's no place for that. Um, the fact that that happened and that word was used, I mean, it's just, I can't believe that it's, it's absolutely crazy, but it does happen. It happened up here in, in New York last year um, where uh, it happened during a game and people caught a video of it actually. And then they gave it to USA hockey to, you know, suspend them or have a hearing or whatever, nothing happened. USA Hockey really dropped the ball on it. They just, they kicked their tires and nothing happened. And then eventually the, the guy who was responsible for it ended up having to resign um, because he just, it's, it wasn't right. Uh, so yeah, there's no place in our sport for racism. There's no place in our sport for anything derogatory and things like that. So, but it's good. I mean, it, it is good that people are starting to feel uh, a little bit more confident to, to actually speak up when some of these things happen. And I think more people need to, for sure. Yeah. And I'm going to take a second to play devil's advocate here too. And I'm not talking about anything with racism or hitting people or anything like that. However, there's also times where parents and players need to understand that you might get yelled at by a coach. And, and as long as it's, you know, not a personal attack or, or maybe it is, but it's about hockey, like, those are things that you need to also learn how to have a little bit of tough skin because the world is not forgiving. And so, yes, I believe in positive motivation over negative, but there are times when you're going to piss someone off, your coach, a teammate, whatever, and they're going to be mad and they're going to yell at you. Like the way that you choose to handle that then is kind of shows me what your character is. Like, yes, I know that I messed up. All right. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to change it. Like you don't just go tell mom and dad when it's about hockey and it's acceptable. Like I know that that's like a very gray area, but like we also don't want to wimpify and wussify like our, our kids, like the world is not forgiving. Yes. We want to be positive and nurturing. And that's literally what I am all about. However, they also need to learn how to take criticism because they're going to do things wrong in school, in life, in jobs later in life. And they need to be able to take criticism, take it in, look in the mirror and say, you know what, maybe I don't believe in all of that, or maybe I believe in some of it, or maybe all of it's spot on. Now, what can I do to be better? Yeah, no, my, my parents were great with that stuff. They always used to tell me, just listen to the message and not how it comes across and, and any type of like personal undertones that you're taking out of it. Just what's the message that's coming across, like what needs to be fixed and just, just focus on that as hard as that may be, especially as a kid, when you're getting yelled at and things like that. But, um, no, I agree. I totally agree. I think there, there is a fine line and I think that kids do need to learn how to handle some of that tough stuff. And, and we talk about that all the time on this podcast. And, uh, it's just something that my parents used to you know, really hammer in with me was just, Hey, just listen to what the words are and, and don't take anything personally <laughs> as hard as that is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's part of it. And that's why sports are great because you're a kid learning all these lessons that kids who aren't playing sports are not learning, right? You're, you're learning these things where, I mean, that's why you put your kids in sports, right? Exactly. It be, anyway. it's, it's not because, Oh, I'm going to put my kid in, in hockey at six because I want him to play in the NHL. Uh, if you're doing that, like take yourself to the vet and ask yourself to be put down. That's not what you should be doing. It's for them to learn life lessons and to have tough things thrown at them and learn adversity and learn teamwork and learn how to be a leader, learn how to be a follower, all of these things. And then if they make, make it quote unquote to the higher levels, great. If they don't, they're going to have learned a ton of life lessons and pick up something that is a, a sport and a way for them to exercise and have fun for the rest of their lives. 
So yes, we don't want to be kicking people and like screaming at them for no reason. But at the same time, if it's something where it's not a safety issue and it's not a personal attack, parents, I also urge you to not be the person who is texting the coach immediately after and coddling their kid and oh my God, like also let them have some tough stuff happen to them within reason. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I think uh, that's some great advice. And actually, uh, I have some, a lot of parent stuff in my parent guidebook uh, that we talk a lot about this kind of thing. So if you are listening to this and you haven't uh, gotten a chance to, to download the parent guidebook, the hockey think tank parent guidebook that we put together, uh, go ahead to the website, the hockey think tank.com, uh, go under resources and uh, it's free. Um, so just a lot of, a lot of advice from a lot of different people, um, that I compiled and put together in one neat little document. So, um, and, and one of the biggest ones that we talk about is communication, the communication between parent and coach, communication between uh, parent and your kid, communication between even parent and parent, and how important those kinds of things are for for the kids and for the overall culture and well-being of, of the team. So, um, you know, great advice, Jeff, for sure. And uh, yeah, I think that's good. I think we should move on. What do you think? Boom, roasted. <laughs> so I'm really excited for this one. We're doing things a little bit differently today. We're going to talk about special teams. And uh, I think for most of this, I'll probably start a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the talk on the power play based on the power play project that we did. And, and two years ago, Brandon Nerado and I actually charted every single goal that was scored on the power play in the NHL and uh, came up with some unbelievable things. So if you haven't got a chance to look at that, again, it's on my website, thehockeythinktank.com. Um, it's called the Power Play Study or something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we went through all the goals, so I'll be talking a lot about the Power Play. Jeff was a PK specialist and uh, did a lot of PK in his day at, at some really high levels, so love to hear some of your thoughts on the PK as well. We'll kind of go a little back and forth. And uh, what do you think? What do you say? Boom. Let's get after it. Okay. So first, first things first, I'm going to ask you a question and uh, this is going to pertain to the penalty kill. If you could give kids that are listening to this or coaches that are listening to this three habits that are essential to be a good penalty killer inside the zone. So in zone penalty kill, what would those three habits be? Number one, stick on the ice stick pressure all the time. Number two, know your two on one. And number three, try and force the puck to where you want it to be, not where the power play wants it to be. So to elaborate, number one, very simple, stick on the ice, stick on puck. If you're standing in the zone, even if you're the the guy, the weak side winger in the slot, no actions going around around near you. If they want to throw a cross ice pass and your sticks in the air, that's an easy pass to make. So just having your stick on the ice is going to make it more traffic and harder. Maybe they got to throw a sauce over your stick. Maybe they're not, they, they throw a bad sauce and it wobbles. So let me ask you something real quick because I want to get to your other two points. Cause I'm really interested in what you have to say, but let's say you break your stick on the PK. Oh, change right away. Okay. I was going to, that was the question that I was going to ask because I see that all the time. And that's my philosophy is like, if you break your stick, you have what? Seven seconds tops of a five on three. Yep. You know, so go get your stick and get back as opposed to what I think would be a five on three for as long as it takes. It's going to be a five on three either way, because if you don't have a stick, you're, you're useless. Right. Right. Okay. So anyway, I think so. Let's go a little bit even further because you see this all the time. One, if your goalie loses a stick, 
get your goalie his stick immediately. And depending on what league you're in, what level you're in, there's different rules to how you can give the goalie the stick, or if you can give him a player stick, you should know the rules before, especially if, I mean, for the older kids, if you're a little kid, like just pick the goalie stick up and give it to him. If a D man <laughs> loses his stick or breaks it and he can't get to it forward, give him your stick, sprint off the ice and go get yours because it's more important for the D man to have a stick because the guys that they're covering are usually closer to the net more dangerous to score so forward give the d-man your stick sprint off the ice get a stick or get a change like tope said it's going to be a five on three if you're out there with no stick you're absolutely useless you're going to get packed passed around you're going to be a pylon don't be an idiot change get your stick (laughs) number two on the penalty kill everyone should know they're two on one so obviously the power play has five guys the penalty kill has four so instead of just having one guy isolated and you, it's a one-on-one everywhere, you obviously don't want to do that. You have to know in your position, where is my two-on-one? So like usually if the penalty kill is in a box, okay, the D-man down low, his two-on-one might be the guy on the half wall and the guy in the goal line. The forward, let's say that's the lefty. The left forward, your two-on-one is probably guy on the half wall, guy in the middle of the ice. Right forward, your two-on-one is probably you know, maybe slot guy, guy in the middle of the ice, other, other D man. I don't know. Could be slot backdoor, like know where your two on ones are. If you just are looking at one guy, you're doing something wrong because somebody's going to be open. So play in between those, know your two on one. And then to piggyback on that, on top of knowing your two on one, you should know from their setup. And obviously I'm talking about a little bit older guys, probably 14 years old and up. Cause you can think the game a little faster. You should know that within their setup where they want to be. So if they roll into an umbrella, they got three high. They're probably looking for one timers up top somehow. All right. So if that guy is a lefty, I don't even say hands, just know, okay, they want to get it to the middle. So if they're trying to always get it to the middle, take away the middle with your stick. Now force them to keep it on the half wall, especially at the younger ages. I had my 16th team do this last year. When our team would take away whatever they wanted to go to, whatever that team's power play go to, they did not know what to do. It was hilarious to watch because they would just keep trying to force it and force it and force it because we knew what play they wanted to run. And we would just take that away, force them to do something else. Most teams haven't practiced enough and they don't know what to do. That's their main go-to. So that's going to throw their power play way off. And then also, usually what that means is they're going to be shooting it from areas where you don't want them to shoot it from. So when I was playing on the penalty kill, I would always be like, I'm a winger. And I always be like, all right, if they shoot it from outside the top of the circles and outside the dots, as far as width, that my goalie should save that 99% of the time, no matter what the level is. If they get it into the box and they get inside those dots, then it's a lot harder for the goalie, especially it's off a pass. So as a rule for my penalty killers, I always say, if they're going to shoot it from outside the dots, outside top of the circles. If they shoot it from there, it's not the worst thing in the world. Don't overcommit to that guy who's walking in to shoot from top of the circles. Cause if he shoots it and as long as we pick up our guy in front, no screen, no tip, our goalie should save that most of the time. So having shots against isn't the worst thing. If you as the penalty kill is di- are dictating where those shots are coming from. If that makes sense. If you start running around too much and you open up seams, that's where you get seamed into the slot or you get seamed back door and a goalie has almost no chance. So this is, this is a great, this is a great talking point actually, because 
<laughs> one of the guys that I was talking to that listens to this, a higher level guy said, you and Jeff need to disagree more. So he's like, you guys always agree on stuff. We need to, we need to sort of discourse, <laughs> right? So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you on that because one of, one of my biggest things when I look at penalty killers at the highest levels, so you watch NHL, you watch uh, juniors, you watch college. I think the best penalty killers are the ones that can anticipate the best. They can anticipate where that puck is going and then they can jump that person right away. And, uh, and I think that's something that can actually be taught. And I think that's only something that can be taught if you are extremely, extremely aggressive on the penalty kill at the younger ages. So it's teaching them to think about where that puck is going and then almost trying to be there before the puck gets there because they're just, they're thinking it, they're thinking it, they're thinking it instead of kind of packing it in and just letting the other team kind of pass around the the perimeter, which is obviously something that if you're trying to keep goals off the board is, is good. But I want to like, I, like I told my guys, like, I don't really care and this is at the younger levels. I don't really care if we get scored on and we're being aggressive because I want you to think it and I want you to go and I want you to anticipate, anticipate, anticipate. Um, so what are your thoughts to that? Well, yeah, I would have to draw up how I tell guys a penalty kill and how I used to because with what I'm saying is knowing your two-on-ones and not allowing them to go where they want, you have to aggressively climb above the puck to cut off passing angles. So no, you're not going directly at it. Cause if you go directly at a guy in a penalty kill, unless his backs to you or the pucks bobbled or it's off a rim or the entrance, the, uh, the, the, the entrance on the power play, like any good player is going to make that pass right around you. So yes, obviously like we, I always tell them like, if it's a, if it's a sloppy entrance, if it's a rimmed puck, if the players have their back to you, hundred percent sprint at them with a, a good angle, again, knowing you're two on one. But when I say that I wanted them to dictate where we want the puck to be and not where the power play wants it. So let's say you have a guy on the half wall, he gets the puck. Usually they're going to try and climb up the half wall towards the blue line and they want to hit that D man who's walking the blue line. That's like pretty standard power play for everyone in the world. So what I do to negate that is, or how I want to teach guys as the penalty killer, instead of staying in line parallel on the ice to the guy on the half wall, I want them to sprint up towards the blue line, stick out in front of them to take away the passing lane from the half wall to the blue line. Now that's going to force that guy with the puck on the half wall to curl back down or stop and come back towards the net. Now, when he does that, the D man is anticipating and he's deciding, am I coming out to front the shot or is he going to pass the puck down low, which then the D man is jumping. If he continues the guy in the half wall to curl and skate towards the net and he gets in a shooting position, that's where that forward who sprinted up, took away the, the pass to the middle from the blue line. He's coming back down on an angle to where his body is denying the backhand pass to that guy in the middle, forcing him to shoot it. And he pretty much can only shoot it from a terrible angle. He can't cut to the middle and he's either going to have to throw it down to which then our D is anticipating, or he's going to shoot it from a terrible angle, which great. I love that. Yeah. So there's obviously way more and you know, it's hard to just be talking about this verbally that has to kind of be shown on the board, but I would agree. Like I like aggressive, but within thinking about when to be aggressive, well, there's gotta be some structure to it. It's not like people are going all over the place. Like if you're the D you are anticipating and on your toes waiting for that puck to go down to the goal line guy. And that guy should have the puck for less than a second. You should already be out on. You know, right. like if you're, if you're the defenseman and you're talking a little bit more, that's kind of like professional penalty kill where right. pop guy kind of floods, floods that person down on the half right. wall, takes away them. that pass to the point. Uh, the way that 
most college junior teams kill, that person's just in the shot lane of the of the point. And just he's not really sitting duck. Just, gonna, <laughs> just a sitting duck, yeah. He's eating biscuits for dinner all night. <laughs> Absolutely. But but this is yes and no because um, also he's anticipating that puck coming out to the point all the time in the way that, that I used to teach the penalty kill for the players at the younger levels, the, the defenseman is the other defenseman is going to the guy on the half wall, right? The, the forward in the middle is going to the guy at the point, the, uh, the other forward that's on the weak side, he's going to the Ovechkin, if that's what you want to call him. Um, so they're, they're ready. And if they make a play into the middle, into that bumper guy, and they're able to put it through there, like, I just say, Hey, great job. Like that's an unbelievable skilled play that you can make. And I'll tip my hat off to you, but my guys are learning how to anticipate where the pucks are going. And that is what is a really important, uh, a really important skill to get to be a penalty killer at the highest levels. Yeah, and anything below the USHL, they're probably not using the bumper the way that pros are. Like, if some guy teams gets can, it, some teams can, but if they can, great, good for them. Yeah, that's it's not going to it's not going to be a quality shot like it would be in professional hockey, probably even college. Like, you get it in the bumper, you got guys who can rip a one t no matter which way their body's facing. But if you're in amateur hockey, like almost nobody's going to score from there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, Another uh, thing, hey, I want to say this too about the penalty kill. I'll, I'll ask you a question like so my biggest pet peeve with teammates I play with that were on D or or watching youth hockey players like I loved on the power play trying to run things behind the net when I was playing power play yeah. I think it is so different and so hard for players who aren't used to that because it's usually up around the top in like a half circle from goal line up to the blue line back to the other goal line if you run up behind the net and you get penalty killers turned like so many people just lose their marbles. They forget what to do. They freak out. They <laughs> overcommit. So if you're on the penalty kill and somebody goes behind the net, if you chase behind the net, you're probably screwed. Your back's to the players that are by the net now, and you have no idea what's behind you. Yeah. I say, like, I'd rather leave a guy. So who's the most – I always say to the guys that are close to the net on the penalty kill, think about who's the most dangerous threat and shade over closer to that guy. If a guy's behind the net or he's walking out from behind the net, People don't score in wraparounds like almost ever anymore. Goalies are too good. Like that's not the most dangerous thing. But if you go at that guy and he slides a pass through to the slot, your goalie's not going to save that 99% of the time. So just I would like, how do you tell guys on the kill when somebody's running behind the net, skating behind the net? What are you saying to those D men that are close to the net? Well, I feel like it doesn't happen very often, to be honest. I, I know at the highest levels, there's a lot of talk about running power plays from behind the net. I know there's some analytics people who did some studies about the um, the benefits of doing that, but I think some teams have tried it, but still there's very few that actually execute it. Um, but there's no need to chase somebody behind the net. I, I don't think there's any need to chase somebody. So if you're a defenseman and you're kind of in the corner with a guy and that he beats you, but you you get back to the net so he can't come up, into the into the crease area and he has to go around the net just retreat back to the front of the net and then as that person goes around the other defenseman can go and and can take that person or the the weak side forward um, and get in that lane but yeah you're just taking yourself out and and i've talked to goalies before that's the hardest save for goalies to make is when from when the puck goes from behind the net to out front and shot it's the hardest one for goalies to, to save because they're looking behind them and they have to shoulder check, shoulder check, shoulder check to see what's going on in, in the slot. And it's hard for them to do that. It's just a tough play for them to make. So the fact that they have to go from behind the net looking and they don't really know what's going on in the slot, 
to the puck going out. It's just, it's a very slow reaction time and, uh, or very short reaction time. And so, yeah, if you're able to do it behind the net, I would like to see it more. I would like to see more teams try it because it's tough, safe for the goalie to make. And when you get the defense turned around and they have to look that way, it's tough, it's tough to defend. Uh I agree. I always, I always would have the teams that I played on when I went over to Europe run five on threes behind the net. And you also see a lot five on threes, not five on fours though. Yeah. So when I was in Japan and my last year in Austria, we started running five on fours behind the net. I'll send it to you, Matt. It was disgusting. It was so hard to defend because <laughs> well, guys to weren't used it to it. You have to post it. To social yeah. Media. I mean, I'd have to draw some, some stuff out. I don't know how to do that on the computer. I could send it to you and you could figure that out. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> You're the tech guy, not me. No, geez. Oh gosh. <laughs> that is not, not true. Um, did I miss anything on the penalty kill? Anything else you want no, to I don't add to so. that? I think or? that's really good. I, the way that I always thought the penalty kill was ABCs. ABCs. A is anticipation, which I think is a skill and a habit that you have to learn. B is blocks. You have to block shots. You have to get in shot lanes. You have to block passing lanes with your sticks. So anticipate blocks. And then the last one is clears. We haven't talked about clears. So C for me is clears. And that is so, so, so important. How deflating is it if you get the puck on your stick as a penalty killer and you try to clear it and it doesn't get out of the zone? It's like the worst juju feeling for your team ever so and that's where a lot of teams i think the really good penalty killing teams are really good at when they do get the puck the other three guys on the ice or girls on the ice are getting to a spot in support so they can get the puck and then clear it i feel like it's very few times where there's a turnover and that person clears it right away because there's pressure it's five on four there's less players on the ice on your team and there's more on the other team. But if you can find a way in practice to get your um, players to, to really move when there is that transition and puck from power play team to penalty kill team and use each other and clear the puck down the ice, I think that's, uh, that's huge. It's massive. And like if, it's, if, if teams are rimming it in on you on the power play, where are those power play players going usually? To the walls. So a lot of pro not, teams. Not to the windows. Yeah, not to, to the, the windows. To the sweat drops, you know, the rest. <laughs> uh, a lot of teams in, in youth hockey, like if you just get that guy who's going back on the puck to just tap it to the middle and have your supporting D-man or weak side winger be there, it's almost always going to be a hard clear. And if you're going to clear it, especially in amateur hockey where there's no penalty, if you put it into the stands, you better shoot that puck that if somebody tries to grab it out of the air, it's going to break their effing hand. Like you can't, as long as like in pro and in, I don't know about in college now, I would guess it is. If you put the puck over the glass, it's a penalty. And now you're down five on three. But if you're an amateur hockey and you put it out, who cares? I mean, just tell grandma to make sure she's not eating the popcorn when you're on the penalty kill. Like rip the puck as hard as you can. And I'll say one other thing too, because this is something that I have not seen in my two years of coaching. I loved penalty killing because I would try and score on the penalty kill a lot. I, I actually had pumped my own tires here. I was second in the nation in shorthanded goals uh, in college hockey one year. And the guy who was first was on my team also at Western Michigan because a lot of power play teams, when they get the puck, when the penalty kill team gets the puck, they'll, they'll like try and block the shot. So if you get the puck with a little bit of time and you do a pump fake, and the other guys on the ice just go because you know you got to trust your teammates. I'm going to ice it. So at the very least, you could beat the, the, the other team down there to get the puck. But if you start going and you pump fake and the guy in the blue line goes to block the shot, now you got a breakaway. 
Like so many teams don't think about offense when they're on the penalty kill. If you have time, I say forwards go and trust. It's got to be trust. Your demon has to get it out. So no matter what, he's got to get it out. And then you're the first one on the puck, maybe get a two on one or a breakaway out of it. I, I, there's so much offense to be created on penalty kills that a lot of young kids don't think about. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's a good transitioning point too, because I believe underneath midgets. So from Bannerman on down, you can't ice the puck on a penalty kill in USA hockey, correct? Uh, I believe that's a rule now. So you can't, yeah, under, under midgets, or maybe it's under Bantams. I don't, I don't know. I can, maybe I'll, I'll take a look at it uh, at some other time, but I believe you cannot ice the puck in, uh, in youth hockey. And there was a lot of different uh, opinions on that. Let's say when they changed it, if, and when they did change it, I believe they did, but I, I love it. I think that is a fantastic rule change to put at the lower levels of hockey because, and I'll tell people this. So at Cornell, we always had one of the top penalty kills in the country. Always. It was a team defense is a huge staple of, of what we did. And we would always have a day where we were not allowed to ice the puck on the penalty kill. Love that. I we had a day that. where you're not allowed to do it. And the reason why is it goes back to what I was talking about before. If you do want to clear the puck, a lot of times you have to have support and bump it or chip it along the wall or put it behind the net to somebody that's got to be there for support. So they had to play a little bit of a game of keep away and they had it, it forced the players to have to move away from the puck to be a support for the guys with the puck, which is, I mean, the most important thing that you can learn in any aspect of hockey at the younger ages. Um, so I absolutely love that rule. I think it's an amazing rule and the people that don't agree with it because it's not quote unquote hockey and you're teaching bad habits. I think those people need to do some more research and they need to talk to some more hockey people at the higher levels because I think it's a fantastic rule change. And, uh, we did it at Cornell top power play in the country or top power penalty kill in the country for a lot of years. And, uh, and we, we would do it once, once a week. I love that. I absolutely love that, man. I, I that's, that's a great rule. And I love when you put games, uh, not game drills and stuff like that together. And Adam Nicholas talked about this, like building upon skill upon skill upon skill or, or um, regressions and progressions. Yeah. Like, okay, maybe the first one, you just give it back to the other team right away. If it turns over, then the next one, you have to skate it out. Then the next one, you are allowed to shoot it out. You know, things like that, that'll challenge everyone on the ice just differently in different situations to get used to different situations when they're going to arise in the game instead of just the same rules all the time. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, just a different way of thinking about things. And again, the game is all about puck possession now. So if you can find a way to teach your kids about puck possession and keeping the puck instead of just icing it. And, and this goes back to what we talk about all the time. Like your job as a youth coach isn't to win hockey games. So yeah. Is icing the puck going to help you win hockey games? Yeah, probably. But at the same time, if you're teaching kids um, the other kinds of things, like we talked about in puck support, and the regressions, progressions, and using your skills to make certain plays in certain areas and certain situations. Um, it's, it's, it's awesome. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Great advice. But yeah, so yeah, that's the way I always taught penalty killers, uh, anticipation blocks and, and clears. I just think those are three things that are staples of, of any good penalty kill. And if you don't have those three things, I think you're in a tough spot as uh, as penalty killers too. I'll go back to that stick pressure real quick too, because like I, and I've said it, I literally I've harped on it almost every episode we've had about how important 
I think stick pressure is in hockey. Like it definitely, Mike Hastings changed the way I played hockey when I actually learned from him how to use stick pressure correctly. I would not have played college hockey if I couldn't, if I didn't learn stick pressure from him. And I definitely would have been a penalty killer in the AHL if I didn't learn stick pressure from him. Like it is massive. And, and so many guys will think, okay, well, I just got to have my stick on the ice and point it at the puck. When you're on the kill, like I was saying, you want to keep them where you want them to be, not where they want to be. So think about, okay, where does he want to pass it? So then where does my stick need to be for my two-on-one so that I negate him passing it to that guy? You know what I'm saying? So like really boys and girls listening to this and parents and coaches, think about that stuff. Like play chess, don't play checkers. Think two moves ahead, not one. There you go. I like it. And I would encourage people to, to really just watch it. NHL games, watch what some of the best players do. Like I, I did a study on Nicholas Jalmerson. I wrote about it uh, for him on the penalty kill. He was incredible to watch. And I learned a lot just watching him and what he did. So we always kind of talk about watching players that we want to emulate. And a lot of times I feel like that's taken the way that I even perceive it is like the offensive side of it, but watch guys like, uh, like a Zdeno Chara, watch guys like a Nicholas Jalmerson uh, that are really good on, on the penalty kill and see what they do if you want to implement that stuff into your game or even as a coach, if it's little little teaching points that you want to, to give to your players as well. Love it. Love so, it. Um, okay. That's a lot about penalty kill. I like it. Should we? I, mean, sh- I, I love penalty kill. And I just want to say too, and, I, and so something I, I always do, I did with my teams when I played and I, I – have had my teams the last two years now that I'm coaching do it is I love getting the penalty killers fired up. Like the first few practices, <laughs> I kind of just don't say anything and just see what they're doing. It's not super intense. And then I'll bring the penalty killers in and be like, look, it's your job to beat these guys. If you ever want to be on power play, you got to start by owning the penalty kill. Cause you're not yeah. on power play right now. Everyone wants to be on power play. Everyone's be on. all right. We'll own the penalty kill, make them suck at it. So that now we have to change personnel. And then also it makes it way more fun when the guys start talking ish to each other. So I'll get the penalty killers to be going in and be like, you're not going to score on us. No effing chance. There's no (laughs) way you're scoring on us. And then when the whistle blows, if the penalty kill has killed it all off, the power play has scored, they're out there celebrating. They're going nuts. Then the power play gets angry. Now they're trying harder. Always turn things into a competition. No one wants to lose. Everyone likes to win and, and talk smack to their teammates in a positive and fun way, obviously. Sometimes it gets a little heated, but you want that. It's awesome. Turn those things into games. Oh, hey, power play. If you score them less, less than two goals in the next 10 minutes, you got to untie the penalty killer skates or you guys got to buy those guys a Gatorade or make some kind of competition. Yeah. Out of it. it makes it way more fun. Guys take it more seriously. They work harder and they become better for it. I love that. Yeah. The competition aspect is so cool in practice. And it's so funny too, because there are some practice, as you know, that you've been a part of, I'm sure where the penalty kill is just totally demolishing and the, the power play. And then the power play guys usually have a little bit more of an ego. They just get sour and pouty (laughs) and so upset. And yeah. Um, But I do want to go back one thing before we do go to power play as well. One thing that you can do, because I agree with you, your number one thing that you said was stick pressure and having your stick on the ice. If you want to show your players how important it is to have your stick on the ice, do a mock penalty kill in your practice where the players have to turn their sticks upside down or they don't even have a stick at all. And just see how easy it is for the power play to do whatever the heck that they want to do. And so it's something that I've done a few different times because I feel like that's one of the habits that just younger kids, they either don't know or just it's not natural to them. It's just everybody plays with their stick up. 
everybody plays with their stick up and it's the most important habit you could probably have in hockey offensively and defensively. Um, so if, if that's something that your team is struggling with, just in practice, just show them, just make them turn their sticks upside down or take sticks away from even, even if it's one person or two people and just see how hard it is to, to actually kill penalties with that. So um, just another little idea, cause it's something that just reiterate your, the point that you made and how, how essential it is to a successful penalty kill. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So, um, okay. So let's, let's move to power play. I think we did a, we did a lot on the PK and I learned a lot from you, so I like it. Um, so power play. So I wanted to ask you, what was typically your role on the power play? <laughs> Standing half in front, baby. <laughs> I played the half wall in Japan for a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Cause I had a pretty good, uh, fake shot backhand sauce to the guy in the middle. I don't know how I, I literally don't even know how to sauce or pass. Um, <laughs> But what I realized, one, and I didn't do this until I went to Europe, which I don't know why. I have no idea why. I always loved going to the net hard. I never, I'd always play on the goal line. And I was okay because I would get the puck and I would just try and sprint and just like create com- commotion and um, jam it into the goalie's pads and hope for a rebound that my teammate would come in and have an empty net. That was kind of like what I tried to do. Um, but once I went to Europe, I played in front of the net and I, I started scoring so many more goals like I, I think I averaged 20 a year, except 20 plus a year every year, except for my last year um, in Europe for seven years playing on, in front of the net. And I'd score like 12 goals a year, just like within one foot of the crease, whether it was a tip, a rebound off my butt. I didn't care. They don't ask how they ask how many. That's very, I true. know, I know you were on the half wall. You're Mr. Vision. I, I was, was not on the half wall. I, opened. I really? was not on the half wall. Well, I mean, power plays were different when we played. So it was more of an overload. So okay. f- for everybody that's listening, just think about the one, three, one power play that everybody runs nowadays. So that's, it's similar to the power play, the overload power play that we would run, except I was the net front guy that would go to the corner when the half wall guy would have the puck. Gotcha. Right. And the, the bumper would actually be in front of the net. And when I would get the puck down low, he would pop out into the slot. Yep. So that was, that was the big pass was the half wall to the goal line guy. And then he's distributed into the bump. Yeah. So I was a distributor from, from that. Whereas now that guy is kind of like the, he's the, he's the, you, he's the guy that's right. in front of the net. That's getting a lot of the, the dirty goals. The um, meat. Yeah. So, and I, I luckily, so it was so funny. So on the power play that I had my, um, my freshman year, sorry, my sophomore year at Cornell, we were number one in the country and it was, uh, myself. I was the only guy that didn't play in the NHL. <laughs> it was, uh, wow. it was me. Yeah. It was me, Byron Bits, Ray Sawada, um, Matt Molson and Ryan O'Byrne. Wow. Yeah. That's a good peeps. Yeah, so I was the only guy that, well, didn't even play in the AHL. But the other guys <laughs> played in the NHL. <laughs> and sorry, that was my sophomore. Did I say it was my sophomore year? Um, but yeah, it was awesome. And uh, we loved it. But I would encourage everybody. So we're going to talk about the power play right now. And uh, so if you haven't had a chance to go to the website and look at the power play study that we did, I know I talked about it a little bit before. Uh, but go to the hockeythinktank.com and it's under blogs. Um, and it's power play study. I can't remember what I, uh, what I did, but another thing that I actually did, and this is in the premium content subscription, uh, that we have as well. So if you, if you want a ton of great, um, premium content, 
uh, stuff that we have put in there is uh, we have all the presentations, including Jeff's and mine, uh, from our Chicago Hockey Think Tank conference. Uh, we have live webinars that you have access to, and then we put the webinars up on the on the site as well uh, afterwards. So if you can't make it, so Brian Kane. Uh, who works with NHL players, Brandon Dorado, who works with NHL players, who's been on the podcast, Mike Garman, who we talked about, Chicago Steel, uh, assistant coach, does a lot of goalie stuff. And then Alyssa Gallardi, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, she does live webinars for us as well. Um, but one of the things that I did and I put up on the premium content part of the website is I did a power play study and I talked about all the different skills for all the different roles um, for each player that's on the power play, if that makes any sense. So you have the guy up top, the point, you have the bumper, you have the backside guy, the Ovechkin, uh, you have the person with the puck, the cane and the half wall, and then you have the net front guy. And uh, Scotty Bartlett, who is uh, a really good uh, sports agent, NHL agent, he actually asked me to do this for some of his prospects. So I went in and, and I just talked about the different skills. So if you can, um, obviously we love the the content that we have in the premium content subscription through the website. That's one of the things that's, that's on there, but we'll talk about it right now. But I think it's really important for coaches to put players in certain roles that will allow them to succeed on the power play. Like you talked about, like my, my strengths was best suited for the net front guy. Um, a guy like Ovechkin's strengths is best suited to be the one-timer guy on the backside. A guy like Patrick Kane, his strengths are best suited to have the puck and be a distributor, right? So I think that's a really important thing to talk about when you want to have a successful power play is putting people in positions where they'll be able to succeed. I love that. I love that. Yeah, you got to think about what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses? And like maybe you have two guys that are the exact same type of player that are on your first line together. Maybe they shouldn't be on the power play together if they're both want to be the half wall guy and they're both really good at that. Or you really get somebody to accept a different role. Right, right. Yeah. And at youth hockey, that's probably the better one so that they're learning how to do different things, honestly. Yeah. Even though most coaches were probably not doing that, actually, now that I think about it. I mean, we change our power play and our penalty kill a little bit, but like, you know, it's probably good to get them out of their comfort zone and even throw them back on the point every now and then just to see a different side of the game. Like, I mean, especially at the younger ages, we talked about that. I think forward should play defense, but anyways, yeah. Like, like thinking about what are your strengths and a huge one, a huge one for youth hockey, not juniors and up, but youth hockey is having your net front guy be somebody who's willing to battle down low and retrieve pucks because what I've noticed in youth hockey and, and and pro hockey over in Europe for sure too, is that there's going to be a lot of rebounds and stuff. So you got to have somebody who's going to be willing to, and, and able to notice there's a rebound that goes to the corner. They got to sprint to that puck, be able to shoulder check as they're going into it, or at least know where their outs are and just get the puck to a safe area. And then you can reset your power play again. Too many kids don't think that way. They're just like, oh, shoot. Okay, it's going to get out of the zone. No, go get that puck. If you keep it in the zone now, that's even more zone time, more possession time. PK team gets tired. Puck retrievals at the amateur level, you know, 15, 16, 14, AAA level, I think is massively underrated. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, they talk about it so much at the higher levels and I'll bring it back to something we talked about earlier when it came to the penalty kill. It's not just the guy that's going to get the puck and hounding it for the retrieval, but it's also the other four players on the ice getting to a spot to be able to support the puck so they can get it over to him, whether it's a, a rim release behind the net, whether it's an indirect off the wall, out to the point, whether it's somebody that's in the middle of the ice, Patrice Bergeron. Oh my God. I encourage everybody that's listening to this to watch Patrice Bergeron and how unbelievable he is as a support option in the middle of the ice, especially when the puck is Boston's power play is a little bit more unpredictable than most of the other teams. So they Patrice Bergeron is the reason why they're able to do that because he's so good at being a support. Um, so I love your point. You're a hundred percent correct, but I'll add to it. You said, know your outs. That's one of the things that I'm just reiterating that know your outs and make sure at the highest levels at the NHL and in college, like they have a plan. So when the puck oh, yeah. goes to the corner, everybody knows where they're supposed to be. Right. You know? Right. And uh, so, but at the youth levels, encourage your players that when that does happen and the guy goes to retrieve it to make sure that everybody else isn't just standing around watching and they're getting to a spot where they can be an out, as you say, for the player that's getting it. Yeah, and, uh, and just watch Patrice Bergeron do everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, you want to study a player who plays the game the right way and has made tens of millions of dollars literally by just focusing on every single detail. That guy is an absolute bamf. He is an animal. He does everything correctly. He's a machine. I loved watching that guy playing against him in practices and camp and watching him playing games when I was able to play in preseason games like – man, can you just learn everything from that guy? Like, uh, holy crap. Oh, yeah. And Tori Krug, I think, is my favorite my favorite player that plays up top, too. He is so good at walking the line. Oh, yeah. He's so good at distributing the puck when it needs to and showing poise when you need to. Um, and he's fast, and he can rip. Like, he's he can rip a shot. He is unreal as well. I love watching that power play. Because it's not your typical one-through-one that everybody – um, everybody does either. They, you know, you can see Krug in the corner and you can see Marshawn up at the point. They, you can see it's a lot of chemistry and reading and oh, moving. Sure. And it's very, it's very flowy. If you will. <laughs> Hi, flow. Um, <laughs> excuse me, flow. Um, but anyway, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about on the power play side is just what are certain skills that are important for each role that's on the power play? And it's, again, going back to the content subscription. It's one thing I really go through with it, but just I wanted to touch on it here because I think it's really important. So what would you say like a really good skill being a net front guy? What's a great skill of a net front, a net front player? Number one is, I mean, not number one. I mean, you have to talk because you're, you're the eyes for a lot of guys. Like a lot of guys will be down low spinning or skating away from pressure. And if you're in front – you know, they might have one guy coming from the back and one guy coming from the front and they're only looking one way. So like, you gotta, you gotta talk a lot, like down low, down low, up top, like be those guys eyes, just like a goalie on a breakout should help the D man behind the net. Like be your, your teammates eyes. You're going to make them better by talking to them. So number one, if you're a net front guy, you got to be able to talk. Number two, unselfishly screening, like your first role there is to, make it so the goalie can't see the puck. So a lot of guys think they're screening the goalie. You're not, you're not <laughs> like you're, you're just absolutely not in practice. Turn around during the power play when there's breaks and say, did you see that shot? Could you see the puck? And odds are he's seeing it. So whether you want to like lift your elbow, like if you just see 
you know, out the right side of your corner of your eye, he's looking over your right shoulder. Maybe just lift your right elbow a little bit. Make it a little bit harder for him to look around you. Don't do the full Sean Avery where you turn around and put your hand in the goalie's <laughs> face. But put your elbow up or right as the puck is going to be shot and you know it's going to be shot. If he's looking over your right side, take a quick spin to the right so that he loses the puck for a split second. Because if you ask any goalie, as a shot's coming, if someone skates through their line of vision, they're hooped. Yeah, they, yeah. that from then on, it's all a guess. They're just going to drop into a tight stance and hope the puck hits them. There, so there are you, actually teams that, that set up timing and plays so that a player will shoot the puck as the net front guy is going across the goalie's eyes because it's absolutely. impossible to stop. When I played on teams where I knew guys were not shooting for a tip, which I loved players that shot for tips, by the way, we'll get back to that. But if I knew a guy up top, like didn't have that skill and it was more of, he's just Alex Ovechkin going to absolutely blast the puck. I would just try and get in the goalie's eyes right as he's shooting it. Whether that means I was spinning around so that I'd take away his eyes for a split second as the puck's coming. And while I'm doing that, I'm spinning in a way that I'm facing the goalie as the puck is hitting him. So now I'm ready for the rebound or, and, and I never got called for this. And I, I, I don't, refs, I don't think have the, the foresight to see it or, or they don't, they can't think fast enough every now and then, if I couldn't get to the net, if I was off to the side, cause I was in a support role and the shots coming, I'd stick my stick up in the air with my blade flat. So it would be in front of the goalie's eyes just for a split second. Like I'm skating back to the net. I just reach up like I'm trying to tip it but I would put the fl- my blade flat facing away from the goalie so that it would be right in front of his mask as the puck's coming. You're never going to get that penalty called on you. And if you do, it's a funny story. It's really going to hoop the goalie. Like work on, I tell my guys to work on it in practice all the time. The goalies absolutely hate it. But I think that to get back to it real quickly, the things you got to be good at in front of the net, screening, talking, retrievals, and work on tipping pucks, obviously. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I think that's, that's good. I think the other thing that they have to be really good at too, is knowing when to step off to be a support. Oh yeah, totally. You know? So like a lot of times they're kind of like the, the last line of defense if the other team is being really aggressive on the half wall player, or the backside player. So their only option is to really get it down to you or even cycle it along the wall. So they have to be really good at knowing when to step off from the front of the net to the side to be of support too, but totally agree. The retrievals, that guy's just got to have a lot of courage. The player in front yeah. of have a lot of courage because you're right in front of the goalie. You're going to get hit with pucks, but there are players in the NHL that have made millions of dollars with not a lot of skill, but they're willing to do that role. You look at a guy like a Thomas Holmstrom from, yeah. cool. you know, how many years did he play in the NHL because he was really good at tipping pucks and he wasn't afraid to get hit. Although it was Lidstrom. So he probably didn't hit him that much, <laughs> but either way, I mean, um, those guys have to have a lot of courage and, and be willing to take some physical, some physical pain from cross checks from defensemen, but also, yeah, but there's no cross checks anymore. Yeah, that's true. That's there's, true. There's Back in the day like, when we played, there was, you're, but you're, like, yeah, yeah, when we were young, when we were in juniors, like my, that's what you were taught to do. <laughs> yeah. Murdered. Absolutely murdered. <laughs> uh, just raped in front of the net and it was totally legal. Um, but now like you're not getting cross-checked, like you just got to worry about getting hit with the, in the face with the puck. But other than that, like, yeah, I mean, I always tell the guys, where does the puck have to go to score the net? You want bread, go to the bakery. You want a goal, go to the net. The puck is going to go there. Like yeah. just go and in, there in, and in my score. So in the power play study that we did, a significant amount of goals was scored within five feet of the net, like significant, significant. And also one of the things that we tracked was traffic. So if the goalie's sight line was taken away, whether it was from a pass or, or a shot, um, 75% of the goals that were scored on the power play 
had traffic in front where there goalies was the are goalies too good they're too good they're just they're, they're too, too good. good they're too big they're too and good and even at the younger levels like players aren't good enough they don't have hard enough shots to really snipe from any from outside either so it's that 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 person plays a crucial crucial role in the power play at any level totally agree man so totally let's agree. go on to a next one so the half wall player the half wall player the skill that i think those and this is from watching every single goal that was scored and studying a lot i think the best attribute of that player is how deceptive they are with their body their deception with their upper body and what coaches like to talk about now is separating the lower body with the upper body so almost taking your shoulders and making it seem like they're going to go one way and then putting it the other way. So for instance, so if you're the half wall guy, your two on ones are basically with the, uh, um, the guy that's going down like the net front. So he's your two on one guy against that defenseman. So a lot of times, if you can put your shoulders towards the middle of the ice, that changes that player's stick positioning to want to take away the bumper. And then you put it right down to the, to the guy in front of the net. And then he can just boom, right take it right to the net or pass it to the backside guy or whatever. Or even if you're, let's say you're a lefty and you're the half wall guy and you have a, uh, you have a right-handed shot point man up top and the other team doesn't, as you were talking about, flood you down. So you get the puck and you make it seem like you're going to the, to the net front guy with your upper body. And then you just take your stick and you pass it over for the one timer and get that guy out of that lane that's another great way. So deception with your upper body, I think is such an important skill. So for the coaches out there, I think that's something you can work on with your, your half wall players. And that will make, I, I think you'll see, it'll make a world of difference. I agree. Love that. I mean, deception is everything in today's game, you know, make somebody look this way while you're passing this way. It's going to give the guy you pass to more time, yeah. or maybe he's got a wide open net because the goalie is reading you with the puck. Um, you know, I, I just also makes me think of like, as part of deception is like, look at the penalty killers toe caps. I know Rob Shrimp talked about that for an article he wrote on the hockey think tank.com like a year ago. And Shrimpy is one of the smartest, most skilled players I'd ever seen in my whole life still to this day. And so like, if you can look at his toe caps and then fake to that way that his body's pointing, it's just going to be even harder for him to spin around and go then the way that you want to go. Yeah. So like thinking, thinking ahead. And I think too, Younger guys on the half wall want to stand still. As a penalty killer, I love when a guy stands still on the half wall. I'll let you stand there all day. Yeah. You want to stand at the up above the top of the circles against the wall, butt to the wall, go ahead. I'm not chasing you. You're wasting 10 seconds off that PK. Awesome. So I think those half wall guys got to get comfortable with moving, not just forward, backward, side to side, keeping your head up. Again, looking this way while you're moving north, passing south without looking or using your peripheral vision. So don't just stand still, like get comfortable moving all different ways. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing that half wall players are really good at is just putting pucks in tight spaces. So feeding the bumper when there's only like three inches <laughs> of a passing lane to get it to them or down low, or even if you're going across the seam to the backside guy. Um, so watch guys like Patrick Kane or Nicholas Backstrom. I mean, oh my God, is he incredible at that? Um, so I think that those two things, being able to put pucks in tight spaces and then using deception with your body, I think that's what are, are two huge skills when it comes to, uh, to the half wall guy. Now the point guy, let's talk about the point guy. So if you were to have a defenseman, what would be one or two skills that, uh, you think are really important for them on the power play? I think, and we're talking in zone still. Yep. I mean, getting shots through as the point guy is more important than probably anything else. I don't care 
as a guy who always played in front, I don't care if your shot's even hard. Just get it through. There's nothing more frustrating than like working your ass off down low, getting the puck back up top, and a guy winding up for a clapper, taking 365 minutes to get it <laughs> off, getting it blocked, and now we got to go break the puck out again. Yeah. Like quickness is better than shot velocity. Like just get it through. Get it through, get it through, get it through. And then I would say being able to walk the line is massive. The better you can walk the line and the more you can trick guys with your hips as you're walking the line, the more time and space you're going to give to the guy you pass to or open yourself up for a better shooting angle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I think that's that's incredible. I mean, stationary power plays are pretty easy to cover. Yeah, for sure. Pretty easy to cover unless they can really execute really, really, really well, which teams in the NHL can. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I I think also it's such an underrated thing, but being able to put the puck on somebody's stick Mm. every time. Mm. So I studied the Washington Capitals power play. Want to know why Alex (laughs) Ovechkin has so many goals? And Perfect why John passes. Carlson has so many points is because he can put the puck where Ovechkin wants it every single time. Yeah. And I, I encourage you to watch this. So the next time, whether it's a youth game or whether it's an NHL game, somebody is ready to bomb a puck. They're in that position where they got their stick kind of at their knees and they're ready. They're in that shooting position. And then the puck isn't where they want it to go. Like it's too far in front of them or it's too far behind them or it's bobbled or um, it's wobbly, a butterfly kind of thing. It happens so much, so much in the game of hockey. And the best point players, just commonplace, they can put the puck on somebody's tape every time. Every time. It's incredible. So I encourage you to watch that as you're watching the next game. And the other team, they just play with their head up too. They always have their head up. Always they can find seams, whether it's a seam for a pass or whether it's a seam to just wrist it down like you were talking about, getting it through quick to get it to the front of the net for second chance opportunities. The, the, the two skills that I think are really important is just they're really simple. Put it on people's stick every time and then play with your head up. I think if you do that as a defenseman, you will be so much better. But I agree, the, the walking the line, as you talked about, and being able to catch, uh, get pucks through is so important too. Yeah, that's that is like I mean that's just all hockey, but it's especially for D men on the power play and and D men in general. Like every drill we do that I'm when I'm on the ice and I'm by the D men and it's like a pe- kick it up to the D man. D man walks a line, he shoots it. I am screaming at them. Do not look down. Do not look down. Do not look down. Because in practice, I don't care if you lose the puck, especially at 15, 16 years old. Like I don't care. I'll kick you another one. I want you to practice getting the puck against the boards, sprinting the middle of the ice and shooting with minimal stick handling, unless like you need to, and never look like not once looking down. And if you lose the puck, I don't care because at the beginning of the season, you might lose it 10 out of 15 times middle of the season. Maybe it's seven out of 15 end of the season. Hopefully it's two out of 15. Like that's the goal. So like the only way to get better at it is to practice it. Yeah. So coaches, if you're telling a D man that on the power play, you want his head up when he's walking the line, but you're yelling at him in practice. If he catches a puck, bobbles it, whatever, like you're sending mixed signals, allow them to fail, allow them to try, push them out of their comfort zone, force them to skate around and walk the line and move around the power play with their head up the entire time. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Next guy. Let's talk about, let's talk about the backside guy. So the Alex Ovechkin, the Steven Stamkos, the guy on the backside that, 
typically gets the one-timer goals. Uh, what's a skill you think is really good for them? Timing, number one. Not sh- timing is more important than shooting. Like, yeah, if you're if you're just like the one-timer guy, yeah, you got to have a sick one tee. But you got to be able to time when to move into the one-timer, when to pop up for it, when to slide down for it, when to come in, when to come out, yada, yada, yada. doesn't matter how good your shot is. If you can't time it, then that guy can't pass it to you. I 100% agree. That's I'm really glad that you said that. Um, yeah, they're just so, so, so good at being in the right spots at the right times. Um, and so again, it goes back, like you said, like an Ovechkin, watch him. It looks like he's not doing anything, but he's finding those seams. Yep. He's finding those spots when Carlson gets the puck. He knows where the, so typically in the NHL, the player that's coming out to block his shot is the defenseman that's in front of the net. He knows where that guy is. Watch him shoulder check, shoulder check, shoulder. He knows where that player is. So he knows what lane to shoot it at. So it's not even just, um, finding the seams for the pass that they're going to get, but it's also finding the seam for the shot that they're going to get as well. I like you watch line a, you watch Ovechkin Stamkos. Those guys are so, so good at that. And it's all about having your head on a swivel. It's all about reading the play, reading where the penalty killers are. And uh, you know, when you're able to be in the NHL level and, and watch video, it's a lot more scripted for sure. So they know certain spots to be at certain times, but at the youth level, I encourage all coaches to, to teach their kids to Watch where the seams, where they open it up. Watch where the penalty killer's coming, the one that's uh, the one that's supposed to be covering you and what lane they're coming out at you at. Those players are so good at that. Yeah, and, and another thing, something that I noticed at the youth level, and I literally was harping on this last week in our practice. When, we, when I see kids take one-timers, they want to tickle the ceiling every single time with their stick. <laughs> they're lifting their stick up to touch the heavens and come down on a one-timer. And when you're younger – it's really hard to do that. If you have, you're not strong enough. You don't understand timing yet. For most players, you don't need to tickle the roof. You're not painting the roof. You're not doing that. Like a half wind up one timer is almost always more powerful, especially in younger guys than a full wind up. There's way more flex when you go up high has more chance for the, for the blade to the shaft to like bow out and have the, the puck come off. Um, very flimsy and a lot of guys just hit it with the wrong part of their blade too because it's up so high they can't like time the puck correctly when it's lower it's when you cock lower it's way easier to time the shot way easier there's no doubt in my mind every practice i'm telling the guys when they practice one timers try going a little bit less wind up and then they're always shooting harder and they're always hitting the net with a much higher percentage yeah totally Totally, I something like i noticed <laughs> i actually had a conversation with somebody about that a couple of weeks ago but we were kind of going back and forth about that whether or not to do the full wind up or not and his opinion was more of well you can get more on it if there's a bigger wind up and i was like nah real that i don't know i, didn't, I disagree I, i'm more i'm more i'm more in your your camp for sure but everyone's shooting is also different but also something you got to think about big time which kids don't think about is your kick point so like I played with a super low kick point on my stick and that allowed me to get off really quick, accurate snapshots because that I was, I was really good at shooting and stride. I either scored in front of the net or shooting in stride, low blocker, 10 out of 10, get off me. Learned it from Brandon Rado, what's up? <laughs> but the problem with a super low kick point, with like the stick that I used is my one timers were atrocious because of that low kick point. It flecked so low that when I would wind up for a one timer, my stick would 
would bow and flex so hard down low that the puck would come off flimsy. So I also had to, if I was taking a one-timer, go with like a super low, like sweeping one-timer type motion that Jamal Mayer showed me one summer. Like it's just way smoother. And then you don't have to deal with as much flex when you go up higher. So if you're a guy who's using a, using a super low kick point and you're the one-timer guy and your shot keeps coming off flimsy, you might want to switch to a mid or high kick. I tell D-men that like so, slap shots. So for kick points, you, you mean just where the stick flexes pretty much? Basically, that's what a kick For the people means. that don't, yeah, for the people that yeah, don't. Yeah, that's basically what, what you're means. talking about. Yeah, so like a low kick point is really good for snapshots, wrist shots, I guess, too. Mid kick point is somebody who takes snapshots, leans on their stick probably a little bit harder. Uh, some guys like them for one-timers. And then a high kick point is for guys who take a lot more slap shots. It's going to be a little bit stiffer. It doesn't flex down lower. So you're going to have more accuracy on slap shots. So depending on what kind of shots you like to take, you should know what stick you want. That is a big thing to know. When you go into a hockey store, if you're younger, talk to the guy who works there, do your homework, Google, what kick point should I be using? (laughs) And learn that stuff because it will change how your shot comes off, 100%. Yeah, yeah, I know there's a lot of talk about that now. I never really get into it. I'm not I'm not as much into all that kind of stuff. I think people can psych themselves out if they get too into it, but there is there False. is certainly I disagree. Uh, well, there's a certain extent that people can go to where it gets a little insane, I think. At the end of the day, you got to play hockey, but I do agree that there is validity to what you're saying. Man. But th- it th- it doesn't make you a right good it doesn't make you a good or bad hockey player. I'll say that. Oh, for sure. But you're going to score more goals if you have the right <laughs> stick that's that, that you need for the way you shoot. Like there's no doubt your shot will be quicker and harder. I agree. I agree for sure. Science. <laughs> Hashtag science, Jeff Levecchio. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Last, the last person uh, that uh, want to talk about the bumper. So the bumper is the guy in the middle of the one, three, one middle of the ice. What do you think is a, a skill that's important for that player? Vision, talking, moving around constantly moving around like constantly mirroring that guy or whatever type of system you're running whether it's kind of like a triangle where the guy in the half wall then you're at some kind of acute angle and the d-man is at a different angle or if you smarty pants (laughs) oh yeah acute obtuse right i know them all um (laughs) pythagorean's theorem a squared plus B squared equals C squared. Um, if, if, if your job as the bumper guy is to parallel and be on like a, a tightrope with that half wall guy going up and down, up and down. So you're always an option. Um, knowing where the guy behind you is. We've, there was a team called Graz 99ers in Austria. They had the best power play I've ever seen in my whole life, my last year pro. I literally had nightmares when we play them about what to do in the penalty kill because their bumper guy he was the best I've ever seen. I, like we'd watch video. We could not stop them. Our, our penalty kill was probably like 8% against them over the course of the season. He was so good because sometimes he'd just get it, give it right back. Sometimes he'd get it, one touch it to the point. Sometimes he'd fake get it, let it go through him so it would go to the far side guy. Sometimes he'd get it, spin, hit the far side guy. Like he just, they were so good. So if you can kind of know where everyone is, and then distribute the puck accordingly and be talking and doing all those things. Like the bumper guy is super important. Yeah. And the bumper guy, what you're talking about. So the bumper guy and the backside guy should never be in a straight line. You're easy to defend when those two players are in a straight line. If they're what I call it staggered. So your bumper guy is a little bit lower and your backside guy is a little bit higher. You're just not in the same line as the person with the puck. 
um, specifically if it's the guy in the half wall, it just opens up seams. And it's hard because then you talk about having to defend two-on-ones. Like there's more two-on-ones when those two players are staggered than if they're in the straight line because then it's just you're basically covering two two players. So in in watching a lot of the power play goals, that was a huge thing was – those two players being in, in different areas and not always lining up near each other. But I agree. And the bumper players from, from my, let's call it research. They, when we were playing, I feel like that guy was a shooter. That player was like yeah. a person who would, would score a lot of the goals by feeding them in there. A lot of times now that player is a little bit more of a facilitator um, where the backside guy were like an Ovechkin or a Stamkos or a Pasternak. Those are the guys with the heavy shots. The player in the middle is a little bit smarter. He knows where to be for support when the defense is being aggressive um, and you need, a, you need an out. I think those players are, are good distributors. They just their they're, role is a little bit more playing smart as opposed to playing as the sniper. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. If that guy can distribute well, if you got a good bumper, the odds of you keeping the puck in longer are, are just exacerbated because if you get in trouble and you know the bumper's there, you just kick it out to him and then he yep. knows where to go with it from there. So from a puck possession standpoint, it's it's going to be better. And then just from like getting the other team to move, like all you want to do with that bumper guy, not all you want to do, but a big reason that they've people started using the bumper guy as more of a passer is they'd hit the bumper guy to then suck a killer to him then he would distribute it. And now that killer is out of place and you created right. a seam. And the whole thing you want to do with power plays is create seams, whether for passes or shots. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that player. And again, I'll, I'll say it. Um, Patrice Bergeron, there's none better. Like he's just, he's, he's so good. And uh, another guy that's really good actually is Mark Shifley from Winnipeg. I thought he was fantastic as well. And he, he can freaking rip a puck too. So when he does get the puck in the middle and a lot of times you see a guy like Mark Shifley or a guy like even TJ Oshie, they're scoring a lot of power play goals because the other team is so worried about Ovechkin or so worried about a line a that that opens up space in the middle, middle of the ice for those players. And if those guys can shoot too, Oh, for, forget about it. I mean, yeah. you're, th- that double-headed monster is, uh, you know, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> the old double-headed monster. Yeah, yeah. Um, another question I had for you on the power play is I wanted to ask you, so as the net front player, okay, so you have the net front guy, you have the player on the half wall who has the puck the most, and then you have the guy at the point. As the net front guy, would you rather have the point player as – a one-time option or would you rather have that player is somebody who can walk the line and risk a shot through to get it down to the net as the net front guy walk the line every time yeah I, we walk would have this line. debate all the time on what was what was more important it, but it depends on if you got a guy who just has an absolute hammer from the point yeah like i mean it, if he always is getting it through like that's probably better um, for the most part, but I mean, there's no better. It's all about what your personnel is. But when you got a good lefty, like you were talking about set up on the left side, lefty on the half while he passes up top, if that's a lefty and he can sprint across the blue, it just opens up everything. If he beats his, his guy, he's got a, a clean wrist shot through, could take a slap shot if he wants to. And as the guy in front, it's so much easier to read a wrist shot or a snapshot than a one-timer. Yeah. Me as the guy in front, it's very hard to read where I need to move my body um, for a one-timer because you can't really read the blade, but neither can the goalie. 
but I can read a wrist shot. I'll know exactly where it's going all the way in and I can see it and tip it and, and rotate if I need to rotate and step out of the way at the last second. Um, it's a lot easier to read a wrist shots blade. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. We used to talk about that all the time in the coach. What was your point? What was your stance? I think it depends on who the player is for sure. Right. Like if you have, and, and it's different too, because in the, in pro hockey where the top penalty killer is putting their stick in that lane. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tougher to, to one-time pucks um, because that, that lane is being taken away unless you sauce it over or, or are able to thread it through. Um, and you've seen a lot, like there used to be a lot more point shot goals in terms of the power play. There used to be a lot, but again, hockey, you study video and you see certain tendencies. So now that's why you see that, that top forward flooding down on the half wall guy now taking away that, that one-timer, but a lot of, ways that you know the younger kids and, and in college and in juniors the way that they kill uh, a lot of them anyway is they don't they don't take away that top option so you can just sit there as a one-time guy up top and have at her and that's actually another skill that's really important and it goes back to keeping your head up um and we talked about it with the backside guy how he's always looking at their shot blocker and where they are if you're a one-time guy playing the point on the power play, you have to have your head on a swivel and know where that top forward is. And you have to get in a lane away from that forward. So that person should always be moving laterally and trying to get out of that shot block lane when other players have the puck. So that way they have a shot lane when they do it to get the puck through. That's a huge, huge, huge thing of, of guys that are really good up top. Totally They're agree. always moving. They're always moving. They always have their head up to, to find that shot lane. Yep. Totally so, agree. Um, I'll say this too. If you're, if you're on a, on a power play like all year or a lot of time you're with the same guys, I found it really helpful. And I started doing this probably only in my last like four years playing. I'd go out to practice early and goalies like taking shots from the point as a warm up because they can work on tracking um, to get their eyes and body ready for practice. And I would stand in front and have whatever guy I was on the point with the demon walk the line and shoot like they would in a game or take one timers. So I could get used to watching how the puck comes off their blade, or I could get used to watching how their body opened up and when their body opened a certain way, all right, he's probably going to shoot short side or he's going to shoot far side. And then just learning his tendencies. Like sure. we, I wouldn't have anybody in front of me, just me and that guy, somebody feeding him pucks. He would decide what he would want to do. And then I would just kind of learn how to read the puck off his blade. And the more times you can, obviously it's easier when you're in pro, you can go out early, you can stay out late. But if you're on a junior team or you're a coach, this is something that you could suggest to your players. Pair up with the guy who you're always partnered with from the front of the net to D-men and just watch the puck come off their stick and learn how to tip it and stuff like that. Learn the tendencies, just score more goals. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we've talked a lot. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is like, this is running on a, quite some time here. Um, but the, I think this is great. We didn't even get to entering the zone either, which is a huge part of that. Yeah. I think we can probably do that. Uh, maybe at the, in the intro of, of one of our next guests for sure, but we would love some feedback on this. So this will be coming out tomorrow, uh, on Monday. And uh, if you have some feedback for us after listening to this, shoot us a DM, uh, shoot me an email, Topher at the hockey think tank.com and, and let us know what you think, because this is something that's a little bit different. Uh, want to keep you guys on your toes, uh, a little bit, but I thought it would be cool to, to talk some hockey. We've had some awesome interviews with some amazing people. 
and uh, but we wanted to do some things a, a little bit differently. So before we do uh, end this, we do have some people that we want to thank again that we thank every episode. The first people is you, the listeners. Uh, this thing would not still be going again. We're 80 some episodes in right now. This might even be 80. I can't remember. I think this is 80. This is, might be 80. Um, and we've been doing this for over a year now. And, and the reason why we do it is because of you. Uh, we love talking hockey. We love uh, providing information and bringing on amazing guests uh, that can teach you guys a thing or two about the sport. And uh, we want to thank you guys so much for continuing to listen to to Jeff and I. Jeff, the talent, me kind of helped try to steer the ship as best the as brains. I can. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what. I, I have one of my client's parents text me today. Um, and I actually put it on my Instagram story just a little bit ago. And I've trained this, this guy's family, like all of his kids for probably started with his youngest kid uh, six years ago. And he just messaged me. He's like, Hey man, started listening to the podcast while I'm on the road for work. Just wanted to say like, I loved it. Love the insight. Funny, but you're giving a lot of insight, a lot of helpful stuff. It was awesome. And like, there's no better feeling for Tolf and I than when we get a tweet or we get a text or, or an Instagram message, you know, saying that they like what we're doing and you like who we're bringing on. Like we love doing this and, and being able to help people is literally like so awesome. So keep putting it on your social media for us, retweeting, tweeting, talking about us. Let's spread the message because then it'll help us keep getting on better guests. Yeah. And, and the more you help us spread the word, um, by like ratings. So we have over 200 ratings now on, on iTunes and Apple podcasts, um, and reviews when you give us reviews and provide us that like almost all of our reviews are five-star ratings, which thank you everybody that's taken the time to, to obviously do that. When people go to the site and they're looking for a hockey podcast and they see that so many people have, uh, have provided a rating and provided reviews that just kind of, Oh, okay. Maybe this seems like a pretty good podcast and um, they'll, they'll, they'll click on the link and, and want to listen. And, and we feel like we have uh, been able to provide a lot of great information for people out there um, from hockey talk to life talk uh, we try to bring on as diverse of a set of, of guests as we can and doing this even today with the power play just to kind of change it up a little bit and, and do something a little bit different. We want to be creative and we want to continue to um, continue to grow this thing and, and grow it to, to levels that uh, that are incredible. And we want to reach as many people as we can. So if you can continue to do those things for us and provide us that feedback, um, positive or negative, again, we want to get better too. So if there's certain things that you want to hear more, uh, certainly let us know if there's certain things that you want to hear last certainly let us know um but we we really really from the bottom of our hearts appreciate everything that you guys have done for us and allowing us to do this because it's a it's a great part of my week to be able to to sit here and talk hockey with you and and the people that we bring on and uh want to continue to do this for as long as we can man absolutely and anyone listening we want to also thank you thank the training aid, official training aid of the hockey think tank podcast <laughs> gel sticks go to gelsticks.com type in the code that no just kidding <laughs> <laughs> type in the code hockey think tank or what is it think tank think tank think tank type in think tank capital letters uh i also have a deal with a company called hico sticks for anybody a lot of people reached out to me on my instagram and saw it my kids on my team are absolutely loving it it's a hand-eye coordination game uh, my team started do, using this instead of playing sewer ball. A lot of teams play soccer before games. This will help with your hand-eye coordination, warming up your eyes, and uh, tracking. So it's also really good for goalies. Uh, it's hecosticks.com, S-T-I-X. 
And the code for that is VEX, capital V-E-C-H-S, to get a discount. They're a St. Louis company. I'm from St. Louis. I love promoting St. Louis people. So I thought that was pretty cool. They reached out, sent me some stuff to try, and my guys have absolutely loved it. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see me using that on my stories all the time. So since Christmas is around the corner, could be something you'd like to get for uh, your little hockey player in your household. Yeah, yeah, I see that on your Instagram stuff. It looks really dude. They're cool. so fun and they're yeah. really challenging. Like it's, I, I, you know, I love hand eye games. All my clients, we do hand eye every single day. It's brought it to a new level. The boys absolutely love it. I'm gonna wind up having like 20 in the gym so I can have all these different games that I'm trying to create with them. They're they're super fun and it also helps you work on your balance if you're doing one legged stuff because it works on your proprioception. They're just really cool. And again, St. Louis company. I love helping St. Louis people. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I also want to talk about uh, the premium content subscription that we rolled out last month. The feedback that we've been getting on that has been incredible. And for those that haven't seen it, basically what it is, it's it's a parent and coach platform for just some awesome information uh, about the game and about and about the culture, too. Um, so it's not just system type stuff where you're going to learn hockey, but I think it's really valuable for parents. Like you can hear Connor Carrick talk about at, uh, at our conference, how multiple sports growing up was extremely beneficial to him. Um, you know, making the NHL, you can hear a guy like Ryan Hartman who plays in the NHL talk about how his dad was his biggest influence and the certain things that his dad did to help him to be the player that he is today. You can hear Ryan Hardy, who is one of the best general managers in the game right now in the USHL talk about the path that players should be taking to get to junior and college hockey. So you, and then there's also things like I do a whiteboard presentation about all the different four checks. So there's something in there for everybody. Certainly um, there's things in there for coaches. There's things, in there for parents and one of the best parts about the the content subscription is the webinars so we have an unbelievable team of people that i talked about at the beginning of the podcast that come on and do live webinars so you can actually get on there and you can ask them questions and each of them have different topics so the the first one that i did uh was about accountability uh then brian kane uh he just did one on gamifying your practice for all the coaches out there which was incredible i learned a ton in in watching that one um and then you have uh, a bunch of different ones from brandon Narado and michael garman and, and Alyssa Gillardi. The next one that I'm going to do uh, in about a month is going to be all about the neutral zone. So how to win the neutral zone, both both offensively and defensively. So um, the premium content subscription is something that we've we've done a lot of work on. It's and it's providing some unbelievable information for anybody that has a passion for the game. So I'll, I'll put a, a coupon code out here as well. Um, so if you go to the hockeythinktank.com and you go to the premium subscription, uh, just type in hockey all capital letters and uh, you'll get $50 off uh, your one-year subscription for it so um, really appreciate everybody that uh, that has bought it already and provided some great feedback and if uh, you want to learn a little bit more out of the game then uh, go to the hockeythinktank.com and and check it out awesome brother love it all right man well good stuff today this was a fun one for us just being able to to be kind of hockey nerds and and talk about the game but uh hope you have a good week hope everybody listening has a good week and uh we will see you again next monday